Chapter 60 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Chapter 60 The Idealistic Movement. If post-Cartesian philosophy is to be described as busying itself with the problem of the antithesis of mind and matter, the pantheistic monism of Spinoza may be designated as an attempt to solve the problem by merging matter and mind in the unity of the infinite substance, and the empirical movement as an attempt to eliminate the antagonism by reducing mind to matter. The idealistic movement, which was represented by Leibniz and Berkeley, was still another essay to remove the antithesis between mind and matter by reducing matter to mind. Perhaps, however, the true significance of the idealistic movement will be best understood if it is regarded rather as an attempt to restore the aesthetic and religious ideals which were threatened by the first empiricists and destroyed by the atheistic and materialistic empiricists of later times. But whether we represent the idealistic movement as a solution of the Cartesian problem, or as a reaction against the purely scientific concept of philosophy, it will be evident in either case that Leibniz presents a more hesitating and less thorough, while Berkeley represents a more pronounced and more complete form of idealism. Leibniz Life. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz was born at Leipzig in 1646. At the age of 15, he entered the university of his native city, devoting himself to the study of law and philosophy. After obtaining the degree of Master of Philosophy at Leipzig and that of Doctor of Laws at Altdorf, he went to the court of the Elector of Mainz, by whom he was sent on a diplomatic mission to Louis XIV of France. In France, England and Holland, he formed the acquaintance of the most learned men of the time, and with the ample means at his disposal, he had no difficulty in acquiring a wonderfully wide and accurate knowledge of all the scientific and philosophical literature of the day. From 1676 until his death in 1716, Leibniz resided at Hanover, where he held the offices of court councillor and librarian. Sources Leibniz did not compose a complete and extended exposition of his philosophy. His writings are, for the most part, brief treatises and essays on various scientific and philosophical problems. The most important of these are Disputatio Metaphysica de Principio Individui, La Monodologie, Essai de Théodicée, and Nouveaux Essais sur l'Entendement Humain. Reply to Locke's Essay The principal editions of his collected works are those of Rasp, Leipzig and Amsterdam, 1765, Dutens, Geneva, 1768, Erdmann, Berlin, 1840, Fouché de Carré, Paris, 1859 and following, and Paul Janet, Paris, 1866. Merz's Leibniz, Blackwood's Philosophical Classics, Edinburgh and Philadelphia, 1884, and Dewey's, Leibniz's New Essays, Chicago, 1888, 
will be found useful in the study of Leibniz philosophy. Doctrines General Standpoint Descartes had started his philosophical speculations with the desire to isolate himself from his fellow men and to build up a philosophy which should owe nothing to his predecessors. Leibniz, on the contrary, was inspired with the thought of founding a system which should reconcile all the systems of his predecessors, bringing Plato into harmony with Democritus, demonstrate the agreement of Aristotle with Descartes, and prove that there is no inherent contradiction between scholasticism and modern thought. This was in keeping with the many-sided and cosmopolitan character of the man who, as discoverer of the differential calculus, ranked among the foremost mathematicians of his day, and was equally eminent as a scientist, a philosopher, and a religious controversialist. With a view to effecting this universal harmony of systems, Leibniz adopted a theory of reality which centres on the doctrine of monads, the principle of pre-established harmony, and the law of continuity. He sought to establish the perfect correspondence of mind with matter, and the participation of matter by mind, and of mind by matter. Panpsychism. Doctrine of Monads. Leibniz, like Spinoza, considers that the notion of substance is the starting point in metaphysical speculation. But while Spinoza defines substance as independent existence, Leibniz defines it as independent power of action. La substance ne saurait être sans action. From this difference, there arises another. If substance be defined as self-existence, it is necessarily one, and hence Spinoza was consistent with his definition when he taught that substance is one. Whereas, if substance be defined as self-activity, it is essentially individual and at the same time necessarily manifold. The manifold individual substances are monads. The monads are analogous to atoms. They are simple, indivisible, indestructible units. They differ from the atoms in this, that no two monads are alike. They differ also in respect to indivisibility, for the atom is not an absolutely indivisible point, while the monad is a metaphysical point, real and indivisible. Finally, they differ from atoms in this, that the atom is merely a material constituent of bodies, whereas the monad is immaterial, insofar namely as it is endowed with the power of representation. The power of representation is the essence, so to speak, of the monad. Leibniz is careful to distinguish between conscious and unconscious representation. Some monads, as for instance the human soul, are conscious of what they represent. Others represent unconsciously. Each monad, whether consciously or unconsciously, reflects every other monad in the universe. Each monad is therefore a microcosm, a multiplicity in unity, a mirror of all reality, in which an all-seeing eye might observe what is taking place all over the world. One monad differs from another merely in this, that while both represent all reality, one represents it more perfectly than the other. Now, since all the activity of the monad consists in representing, and since there are different degrees in the perfection with which a monad represents other monads, every monad must be dual, partly active and partly passive. 
retaining the Aristotelian terminology while modifying the meaning of the terms, Leibniz calls the passive element the matter and the active element the form or entelechy of the monad. God alone represents all monads with perfect clearness and is therefore pure actuality. All other monads represent imperfectly and are therefore partly active, clearly representative, and partly passive, confusedly representative, that is, composed of form and matter. It was thus that Leibniz strove to reconcile the schoolmen with modern thought. Everything in the universe is composed of monads, and everything takes its place in the scale of perfection according to the degree of clearness with which it represents other monads. Every monad is partly material and partly immaterial, so that from the lowest monad, which represents unconsciously, and shows its unconscious perception in the phenomena of attraction and repulsion, up to the highest created monad, which is the human soul, there is absolute continuity without interruption or unnecessary duplication. This is known as the law of continuity. Its counterpart is the law of indiscernibles. If there is no unnecessary duplication, there is no perfect similarity of forms, and indeed, since no two monads represent the universe in exactly the same manner, no two are perfectly alike. If they were exactly alike, they would not be two, but one. For it is the manner of representation that constitutes the individuality of a monad. Pre-established harmony If each monad is a little universe in itself, reflecting every other monad, and individuated by its manner of representing, if it develops this power from the germs of activity inherent in itself, whence comes the correspondence of one representation with another, and the resulting harmony of the entire system of monads. Leibniz answers by postulating a divine arrangement, by virtue of which the monads have from the beginning been so adapted to one another that the changes of one monad, although imminent, are parallel to the changes in every other monad of the cosmic system. This doctrine of pre-established harmony, which is germinally contained in Descartes' doctrine of the relations of the soul to the body, finds its most important application in psychology. Soul and body have no direct influx on each other, but just as two clocks may be so perfectly constructed and so accurately adjusted that they keep exactly the same time, so it is arranged that the monads of the body put forth their activity in such a way that to each physical activity of the monads of the body there corresponds a psychical activity of the monad of the soul. When we inquire into the ultimate foundation of this harmony and look for the reason of the divine arrangement on which the harmony of the universe depends, we find an answer in Leibniz's optimistic principle, the Lex Melioris. Of possible worlds, God chose the best. And even apart from the divine choice, the best would necessarily prevail over all other possible worlds and become actual. This lex melioris is itself founded on the law of sufficient reason, that namely, things are real when there is sufficient reason for their existence. The law of sufficient reason is, according to Leibniz, a law of thought as well as a law of being. Psychology From the definition of the monad, it is clear that 
All created reality is partly material and partly immaterial. That there are no bodiless souls and no soulless bodies. Moreover, the law of continuity demands that the soul always think, that reason and sense differ merely in degree, and that sense-knowledge precede rational knowledge. Yet although the soul, the queen monad, is akin to other monads, and although the law of continuity forbids a gap between the soul of man and lower forms, the human soul possesses intellectual knowledge by which it is discriminated from the souls of lower animals. Whence comes this intellectual knowledge? What is the origin of our ideas? In the Nouveaux Essais, Leibniz not only contradicts Locke's doctrine that none of our ideas are innate, but lays down the contrary proposition and maintains that all our ideas are innate. He teaches that the soul has no doors or windows on the side facing the external world, that consequently all our knowledge is developed from germs of thought which are innate. The innateness of our ideas is, however, implicit rather than explicit. Ideas exist potentially in the mind, so that the acquisition of knowledge is the evolution of the virtually existent into the actually existent. To the principle, nihil est in intellectu quod prius non fuerit in sensu, Leibniz adds, nisi ipsi intellectus. Have our ideas, therefore, any objective value? Leibniz answers that they have, because the evolution of the psychic monad from virtual to actual knowledge is paralleled by the evolution of the cosmic monad in the outside world. Here, as elsewhere, the harmony is pre-established. The immortality of the soul follows from its nature. The soul is a monad, self-active, self-sufficient, suffisant à lui-même, and is therefore as lasting as the universe itself. Theodicy Leibniz's principal treatise on natural theology, the Théodicée, was composed for the purpose of refuting Bale, who had tried to show that reason and faith are incompatible. The work is devoted in a large measure to the discussion of the problem of evil and to the defence of optimism. Leibniz's arguments to prove the existence of God may be reduced to three. 1. From the idea of God, a modification of Descartes' proof. 2. From the contingency of finite being. And 3 from the character of necessity which our ideas possess. Ideas possess not merely hypothetical but absolute necessity, a necessity which cannot be explained unless we grant that an absolute necessary being exists. When it is said that the idea of God plays a teleological rather than a scientific role in Leibniz's system of thought, the meaning of this is that Leibniz is interested not so much in giving an account of the origin of the universe as in discovering an absolute final cause towards which all created being tends. Indeed, we find that the idealist is always more inclined than is the empiricist to fall back on the teleological explanation and in the philosophy of Leibniz, the teleological concept is of especial importance as the foundation of the principle of sufficient reason. 
It is also of importance as affording a solution of the problem of evil, a problem to which Leibniz devoted much attention. He distinguishes metaphysical evil, which is mere limitation or finiteness, physical evil, which is suffering, and moral evil, which is sin. The ultimate source of all evil is the imperfection which of necessity attaches to limited existence, and which therefore must be permitted by God, although it is reduced by him to the minimum, and made to serve a higher purpose, the beauty and harmony of the whole. Leibniz exhorts us to consider evil not in its relation to parts of reality, but in its relation to the totality of being. We can see, he writes, only a very small part of the chain of things, and that part, moreover, which displays the most evil, and which is, therefore, well suited to exercise our faith and our love of God. Historical Position The philosophy of Leibniz cannot, like that of Locke, be characterised as superficial. It takes up, and attempts to solve, the most important questions of metaphysics and psychology. In spirit and tone, rather than in method and content, it is platonic, that is, inspired by idealism and inclined to the poetic rather than to the scientific synthesis. And herein lies its principal defect. It is unreal. For although Leibniz was as fully alive, as was any of his contemporaries, to the importance of scientific study and experimental investigation, his philosophy is built not on the data of experience, but on a priori definitions and principles. Yet we must not, on this account, underrate the importance of Leibniz as a speculative thinker. He rendered inestimable service to the cause of philosophy by setting himself in determined opposition to the current of empirical sensism. Besides, the study of his philosophy is healthful. It expands the mind, opens up new vistas of philosophic syntheses, and is an invaluable aid to the understanding of subsequent systems. In the philosophy of Berkeley, we find another phase of idealism, an idealism carried to the point of the absolute denial of the reality of matter. Berkeley Life George Berkeley was born at Dysart in County Kilkenny, Ireland, in the year 1685. After having made his elementary studies at Kilkenny, he went in 1700 to Trinity College, Dublin, where, owing to the influence of Molyneux, the philosophy of Locke was in the ascendancy. From the commonplace book, in which, as early as 1705, Berkeley began to set down his thoughts on philosophical problems, it appears that, while still at Trinity College, he had begun to study Descartes and Malebranche, as well as Locke. In 1709, he published his New Theory of Vision, and in the following year, his Principles of Knowledge. In 1713, he went to London, where he formed the acquaintance of Steele, Collins, Swift, Pope, and Addison. And in the winter of the same year, he visited Père Malbranche at Paris. After several years spent in France and Italy, he returned to London in 1720 to find the whole country in a turmoil over the failure of the South Sea scheme. It was this condition of affairs that prompted Berkeley to write his Essay Towards Preventing the Ruin of Great Britain. 
1721, he returned to Ireland to receive a deanery in the established church. From 1723 until 1731, he was occupied with his famous scheme for converting the American Indians and with the project of founding, for that purpose, a college in Bermuda. The two years which he spent at Whitehall, near Newport, Rhode Island, while waiting for the government grant promised by Sir Robert Walpole, afforded him an opportunity to continue his philosophical studies and to make the acquaintance of Samuel Johnson, through whom he may be said to have influenced Jonathan Edwards, the first representative of philosophy in America. On returning to London in 1731, Berkeley published his Alciphron, or the Minute Philosopher, a dialogue directed against the freethinkers, Minute Philosophers. In 1734, he was made Bishop of Cloyne in Cork. In that serene corner, he combined the study of Plato with the advocacy of tar water as a cure for all human ills, publishing Cyrus, a chain of philosophical reflections and inquiries concerning the virtues of tar water, and so on. In 1752, he went to Oxford, where he died in the following year. Sources Barclay's most important works are An Essay Towards a New Theory of Vision, A Treatise Concerning the Principles of Human Knowledge, Three Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonous, Alciphron, or The Minute Philosopher, The Analyst, and Cyrus. The best edition of his collected works is Fraser's, four volumes, Clarendon Press, 1871, new edition, 1901. Fraser's Barclay, Blackwood's Philosophical Classics, Edinburgh and Philadelphia, 1894, is an excellent introduction to the study of Barclay and his philosophy. Doctrines General Aim of Barclay's Philosophy In the commonplace book, of which mention has already been made, we find the following entry. The chief thing I do, or pretend to do, is only to remove the mist and veil of words. The great obstacle to the discovery and acceptance of truth is, Barclay thinks, the use of words which represent abstractions of the mind and prevent us from arriving at a knowledge of things. Locke had indeed announced the principle that our knowledge extends only to ideas, but he straightway proceeded, Barclay observes, to violate this very principle when he maintained that we know the qualities and powers of things outside the mind and have a sensitive knowledge of their existence. Barclay therefore starts where Locke had started, but he aims at going farther than Locke had gone, at establishing the truth of the conclusion that all things are ideas, a conclusion which Barclay regards as necessarily involved in Locke's principle that our knowledge extends to ideas only. Immaterialism In his new theory of vision, Barclay takes the first step in the direction of immaterialism. He shows, in the first place, that the only phenomena which we perceive by means of sight are colours, and that with these we associate the phenomena of touch and muscular movement. He then proceeds to show that the reason of the association is custom, experience or suggestion. The conclusion is that what we see in the world around us is far more dependent on mind than we are commonly aware of. In the treatise concerning the principles of human knowledge, 
he takes up once more the problem of knowledge and endeavours to show that what he had proved to be true of the phenomena of sight is true of the whole phenomenal world of sense. He tries, moreover, to find the reason for the custom, experience or suggestion by virtue of which we associate certain phenomena with certain others. He teaches that all the qualities of matter, primary as well as secondary, resolve themselves into mind-dependent phenomena. What then is it that groups these phenomena? For example, the colour, size, shape, etc. of an orange into those clusters or aggregates which we call things. The answer that phenomena are grouped together by an inert, lifeless matter is self-contradictory, because phenomena, being essentially mind-dependent ideas, cannot exist in an unperceiving substance. Besides, matter is a mere abstraction, one of those words which merely serve to throw a veil and mist between the mind and a knowledge of truth. It is evident, therefore, that both the popular and the philosophical conceptions of matter are absurd. There is no material substratum of things. Mind and mind-dependent phenomena alone exist. To be is to be perceived. Esse est percipi. Yet the world is not a chaos, but a cosmos. There is a continual change and succession of phenomena, and in all this change and succession, there is order and regularity. Quote, there is, therefore, some cause of these ideas whereon they depend, but it has been shown that there is no corporeal or material substance. It remains, therefore, that the cause of ideas is an incorporeal substance or spirit. End quote. Now, since the ideas actually perceived by sense have no dependence on my will, it follows that it is not my mind, but the external, uncreated spirit that produces them. Matter does not exist. Spirit exists. The external world is spirit, and the phenomena which spirit produces in the created mind. The only nominal realities are God and human minds. These are the conclusions in which Barclay's immaterialism is summed up. It follows that there are no secondary causes and that the laws of nature are really laws of the eternal spirit. Theism In the Dialogues, and especially in the Alciphron, Berkeley undertook to show what is meant by the eternal spirit, to whom he had, in his earlier treatises, referred the persistence and activity of the phenomena into which he had analysed the external world. His line of reasoning may be described as analogical. Just as we see men, we see God. As we argue from the phenomena of sight, hearing, etc., to the existence of the human spirit in men, so we may argue from the phenomena of sense in general to the existence of the infinite spirit whose thoughts, physical laws, are conveyed to us in the language of sense phenomena, physical qualities. Alciphron, the sceptic, confesses, Nothing so much convinces me of the existence of another person as his speaking to me. To which Euphranor replies, You have as much reason to think the universal agent, or God, speaks to your eyes, as you can have for thinking any particular person speaks to your ears. Platonism 
The study of Plato, which, during his residence at Cloyne, Berkeley combined with the study of the medicinal properties of tar water, developed in the mind of our philosopher a growing tendency towards a mystic view of the problem of the ultimate reality of things. In the metaphysical portion of the Cyrus, which he published at this time, he occupies himself with the problem of showing how we may arrive at a higher knowledge of God than that afforded by sense phenomena. In his dialogues, he was satisfied with refuting atheism by showing how God speaks to us in nature. But now he seeks a higher and deeper knowledge. The study of Plato has led him to the realisation of the uncertain, ever-fleeting and changing nature of sensible things, and to the consequent depreciation of sense-knowledge as being properly no knowledge but only opinion. Therefore he counsels the seeker after truth to cultivate the use of intellect and reason, to penetrate, by the exercise of these faculties, to a knowledge of the inner nature of things, and through rational faith in causality, to realise that there runs a chain throughout the whole system of beings, and that by ascending from what is lower to what is higher, the mind may reach a knowledge of the highest being. This is a lifelong task. Quote, he that would make a real progress in knowledge must dedicate his age as well as his youth, the later growth as well as first fruits at the altar of truth. End quote. Historical position. It was Barclay's intention to remove the mist and veil of words and then from empirical principles to refute materialism and atheism. If matter does not exist, there is certainly no justification for materialism, and if all our ideas are produced in us by the eternal spirit, if every act of knowledge implies the existence of God, then atheism is undoubtedly irrational and untenable. Barclay had not the least suspicion of the facility with which scepticism would take advantage of his immaterialism to reason away spirit as he himself had reasoned away material substance. You see, says Philonous at the end of the third dialogue, the water in yonder fountain, how it is forced upwards in a round column to a certain height, at which it breaks and falls back into the basin whence it rose, its ascent, as well as descent, proceeding from the same uniform law or principle of gravitation. Just so, the same principles, which at first view lead to scepticism, pursued to a certain point bring men back to common sense. However, Berkeley built less wisely than he knew. He carried the principles of empiricism and idealism to a certain point. It is commonly said, that he is to Locke what Spinoza is to Descartes. But at that point they were taken up by Hume and carried to their logical conclusion, namely pan-phenomenalism. End of chapter 60